for the week of November 6th, 2022. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 598, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And from the Showbiz Sandbox Studios, live and unfiltered, I'm Michael Giltz. I don't we know are why not you... rehearsing. We are not editing. We are rushing through the show. Three weeks of news, all in one take. Here we go. You know what? Uh, I, look, I, I don't know if I can rush. I'm a little depressed, to be honest. Why are you depressed? Well, once again, despite putting our applications in early, the day after last year's Oscars, they have chosen to go with different hosts. Uh, that's right. Jimmy Kimmel is the host of the Oscars. Sperling is going to claim he was away on business trips and taking his quote unquote child on tours of colleges. We cannot say the child's name because he has agreed not to ever do that on the air. And um, so <laughs> that's his claim of why we have not had a show in three weeks, the longest gap in showbiz sandbox history. But the truth is that we were auditioning for the Oscars and came very close. Could have been the Siskel Niebert of the Oscars almost got on the air, but negotiations stalled over us demanding certain creative control, like announcing all the winners on the air and not having comedy bits that are stupid and waste the airtime. Jimmy Kimmel won that debate. <laughs> yeah. Well, and by the way, uh, I, I was looking forward to sitting up there in the balcony with our tuxedos <laughs> on and basically just having them cut to us and going, <laughs> the Fablemans, it stunk. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the old men in The Muppet Show. That's right. A lot of news, of course, over the last three weeks. Sperling was away on business, and then he was away on a college tour, or a tour of colleges is perhaps the better way to say it. I had weddings, and I did not think of this before a wedding, but I realize now, after having attended a wedding and the DJ playing music, that, of course... Old Town Road by Lil Nas X will be played at every wedding for the next 20 years. Didn't even think about it. And I was like, oh, God, of course. <laughs> that is a <laughs> wedding song. A massive hit. People can line dance to it. Old people like it. Young people can put up with it. And it's just a wedding song. Uh, I, uh, oh, dear me. But that's, that is an accomplishment. You can make fun of it. But that's how ubiquitous that song is and how wide appealing it was until people got sick of it. Now maybe they'll like it again. But boy, God, if you go to a wedding, chances are you will hear that song. Well, you know, uh, I was actually heartened uh, by the fact that when you, you posted on our Facebook page that, look, we're off this week and it's the third week in a row. It's never happened before. And people actually responded. I actually heard from people via text and in person. They were like, oh, yeah, no, I saw that you guys are not doing it. I hope the next show is three hours or something. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> they like us. They really, <laughs> they really, really like, like us. Don't make, that's not a quote, and don't make fun of her, because I like Sally Field. I just interviewed her. So, yeah, so we really appreciate the people who reach, reached out and uh, commented, and no matter what social media form they did it, uh, but that, that really made our day. So thank you so much for doing that. And now that means we do have a lot to cover. So what are we going to cover this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, as you mentioned, Michael, we have so much to catch up on because, you know, I'm a bad person and we went away. What the heck? I should really read this stuff before. Yes, I did go away on business. The bad person part, I think I probably should have scratched out. But anyway, uh, then after going away on business, I took one of my children 
on a tour of colleges in the Northeast. So I'm sorry. I, I promise I'm sorry. <laughs> really, I do did miss the show when we don't record, mostly because when we don't record, Michael calls me up anyway and talks nonstop for two hours about the stories of the day. So I'm pretty much doing it anyway. I don't really save any time after all. Plus, the news is so interesting. I mean, look at Kanye West alone. His crazy talk has finally caught up with him. And we really need to hire a court reporter to cover all the entertainment trials. Seriously. Actually, we should have an entertainment reporter trial person on call 24-7. Uh, we'll give you the latest verdicts. On Inside Baseball, we'll tackle streaming because Netflix and Disney Plus and Apple TV and Warner Brothers Discovery and pretty much everyone all made headlines. We were on vacation or working, but they most certainly all those companies most certainly weren't because they didn't get my memo. I mean, come on. I told them, look, three weeks, no news. Pause. You know, your your streamers, press pause. Oh, and by the way, a lot of people died, so Michael is extremely yes. excited. Yeah. Uh maybe he should be nicknamed the killer, just so he could talk. I don't know. Anyway, uh of course, big deal or big whoop. We'll discuss the week's top headlines, but first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gill to fill us in on last week's box office and probably the last three weeks' box office. And in fact, you know what? It's not that we were gone for three weeks. It's that Black Adam has been in the number one spot for three weeks. <laughs> That's right. We're looking at box office around the world. We have a link to calm scores in our show notes. This is the box office for the week ending November 6th. We include all the grosses from the previous week, not just the weekend, because that number is bigger. And why would you ignore four days of the week? So when you look at the total week's box office, Black Adam is the number one film around the world. Dwayne Johnson's DC movie grossed $70 million this week. It's at $320 million worldwide. It's tracking more like Shazam than, say, uh, Aquaman, but it was the biggest domestic opening here in North America for a Dwayne Johnson starring vehicle. It did cost $200 million to make. It's certainly going to blow past $400 million. Will it get to $600 million? Maybe, maybe not, because next week, this Friday, I should say, is Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and that may steamroll everything in its path, but there will be room for Black Adam if there is any more repeat business. We'll have to see how it does. It's already done decently, though not great in terms of the actual budget. But we'll see where it ends up, and it's too soon to make a final determination. It's certainly not, it got poor reviews, but audiences seem to like it. Well, and it's just a shame that now it's going to have to be at some point on, on Warner Brothers Discovery's streaming services. I mean, what a shame. They have this big, giant $200 million production <laughs> on their streaming service. That, that was released theatrically worldwide and grossed four to $600 million, and so has a ton of publicity going into its streaming debut, as opposed to, say, Halloween Ends, which is at $103 million worldwide and made another $8 million this week, passing the $100 million mark. It only cost $25 million to make, so it's quadrupled its budget. It's over $100 million, but it also came out day and date on Peacock. Maybe the studio will say, hey, we're fine. We don't care that we could have made maybe $200 million if we'd gone theatrical only. Uh, we're happy that some people could watch it right away on a streaming service. We know that a Halloween flick meaning a, a holiday scary movie, not Halloween franchise, you know, has a short half-life after Halloween has ended. And that's true for the next few weeks, I guess. The horror is always a perennial. But they could have made maybe a lot more money, but they may look at that and say, we're fine. 
But Ticket to Paradise is an old-fashioned movie. That's the second biggest movie around the world. That's the romantic comedy starring Julia Roberts and George Clooney. It made another $18 million worldwide. It's now opened up in North America. It's at about $140 million <laughs> and counting. Smile, another horror flick. That blew past the $200 million mark. It made almost as much as a Julia Roberts, George Clooney movie this week in a similar release uh, level. And it's it grows $17 million this week blew past $200 million. It only cost $17 million to make. That is a monster hit. The same is not true for Lyle Lyle Crocodile. That's at $64 million worldwide and slowing down pretty quickly. Not great reviews, so it's not a, not a win, really. But Pray for the Devil, another cheap horror flick. That's at $18 million worldwide. It's the last film to star Ben Cross. He's an actor I remember from Chariots of Fire. That was his big breakthrough role. Uh, a lovely film. That's what happens when you have a long career. You can't quite control what your last movie is unless you just stop and say, okay, this is the one. Otherwise, you end up with something that isn't perhaps your best foot forward. But the horror fans seem to like it enough. There's another big phenomenon in terms of anime, and that's One Piece Film Red. It's a Japanese anime. It's the 15th in the series. It's a big franchise extending beyond movies. This new movie, very big in Japan, it made $11 million this week, had a decent opening in North America. It's at $160 million worldwide. It's the highest grossing yet in the franchise, even though it's the 15th film. So you can see Ticket to Paradise, Smile, Pray for the Devil, One Piece Film Red, Halloween Ends. These are all winners. Homecoming is a Chinese drama. It's the first film on our list from China. That market is still dramatically shut down. If you look at the Korean box office over the weekend, the total gross for the box office was $3 million. If you look at China, the total gross for the entire box office, and remember a few minutes ago, China was the number one market in the world. This weekend, the entire box office totaled $10 million. A lot of the country is still shutting down and opening back and shutting down. People are kind of don't want to go to the movies because they're afraid the movie theater will get shut down and they'll find out that they're trapped there, you know, or they won't be able to go to work. So they're fleeing, you know, Apple stores and theme parks and maybe deciding it's not worth going to a movie right now because I don't want to take a risk of having it shut down. That won't happen if you stay at home. So the Chinese box office is very, very slow right now. Local product, they don't want to release because they're afraid the movie will have its legs cut out from under it. Overseas product is simply not getting uh, approved for release. So there's very little product in China. It's bad enough here in North America and the rest of the world. It's disastrous in China. So the number one movie in China right now is Homecoming. Over the last week, it grows $6 million. It's at $211 million worldwide. We don't know the budget for that movie. But we do know the budget for an Indian film called Kantara. This movie opened up small, and over the last six weeks, we didn't even have it on our radar in the first week, it has steamrolled into a very successful movie. It only cost $2 million to make. This week, it grossed $5 million alone, and it's at $40 million total, and it sort of exponentially grew week one, two, three, and four. So this is a real word-of-mouth success story in the Indian market, and of course, those movies play all over the world. So that movie is a big hit. You know, uh, you mentioned China. Um, apparently, over 40% of the movie theaters in that country are closed. So That's not only right. are people not coming out, they can't come out because 40% of the theaters are closed. That's, that's right. Still, 60% of the market should be able to handle more than $10 million. But when there are theaters, 
there isn't a lot of product. It's really old and people don't want to go because they're worried about getting stuck there. The Woman King is playing worldwide, not in China yet, but the Viola Davis action drama that made $4 million this week. It's at $91 million and counting. It has great audience scores. It did cost $50 million to make. It's not going to get to $150 million, but no one's going to lose their shirt on this movie. Ultimately, this should be a profitable film for people. When we talk about movies being a hit, we mean from box office alone. This movie is not a hit from box office alone, and it probably won't be. It's almost completely tapped out. It will probably pass the $100 million mark. In fact, I'm sure it will, but it's not going to triple its budget, which is our very rough rule of thumb not being able to look at the books. But this movie does not have big profit participants, I assume. This movie does not have a lot of fingers in the pie. So it's going to play very well on streaming and video and uh, video on demand and all that. I think it's going to be a very valuable property for people down the road. So this movie is a success story. It's just not a big box office success from the get-go. And the talk on opening weekend of, oh, this movie, we're going to have sequels and it's like, no, no, what you're getting ahead of yourself. And I doubt that will happen, unfortunately, because I was rooting for it, even though I didn't love the film. It's admirable and was happy to see it succeed. Amsterdam will not succeed. That's the newest David O. Russell film that has one of his biggest budgets yet justified based on the box office for some of his most recent movies. But this movie is falling fast. It made $4 million this week, and it's just under $30 million worldwide. Then we have a classic Oscar rollout, Till. This new movie is opening up relatively slowly by modern standards. It's on like a thousand screens or whatever, but it grossed $3 million this week. It's at $6.6 million. It has great word of mouth, so it could build and last quietly throughout the holidays. It could and should do that. Back to China, we have the first new movie on our entire chart. We're 12 or 13 movies down the list. And there's a new movie opening up in China called Serendipity Love or Tada Aiching. Uh, that's the Chinese title. Uh, translated into English, I think that's Ta's Love. So it, uh, it's very confusing to me how it translates into Serendipity Love, but maybe I'm not understanding that right. If you speak Mandarin or Cantonese, you're a Chinese speaker and you're fluent. Tell us what the proper translation of that title would be. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail. We love to get voicemails. We'll play them on the air. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle. Although I guess, should I be saying these days, we're on Twitter for now. (laughs) Uh, we're also on facebook facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox is where you can like our page and i realized what would have been funny is if i started saying that in chinese like you know oh that would have been great yes i also don't know chinese i don't yeah i I don't and by the way when i say on the air i mean like we'll just play it in a future episode since you know we're not on the air per se they got it. So okay. next is I'm going to jump through the rest of the list. You can look at our full list on 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 our charts if you follow our link to showbizsandbox.com. The Palm Door winner Triangle of Sadness. Sperling is rooting for that movie, at least as a commercial prospect. It made $2 million this week. It's about to hit $10 million. Scrolling down, we have um, a Korean thriller called Confession. Remember, the Korean box office is really, really slow. Over the entire week, this new movie grossed $2 million. It's at $3.7 million total. Uh, not setting the box office on fire. And that's the number one film over the weekend. The French have remade the film The Toy, 
which was also a remake of a, another French film called The Toy. This one is called The New Toy. It's doing okay. It's at $5.6 million. And we caught up with Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. It's at $21 million now. It costs $10 million to make. But go back to The Woman King for an argument about how this movie may not triple its budget, but it's going to be a solid library film for whoever made it. And it's going to be a winner when all is said and done. Tar by Kate Blanchett. I saw it. I was not impressed, but it is expanding decently. It's at $3.7 million, and it hopes to have a long Oscar run. Don't Worry Darling is almost done, tapping out at $85 million. Again, just like Mrs. Harris and The Woman King, it ain't going to triple its $35 million budget. It's going to, you know, more than double, two and a half times it perhaps, but it will probably be a solid library film. It's a, it's a, it's a winner commercially for all involved. And what did you think of uh, that one scene in Tar, that one take scene at Juilliard? I'm not, that's not a spoiler, by oh, the way. Oh, um, as art or as I, I had many issues with it. I, uh, uh, I don't think it's giving anything away. You can stop for the next 90 seconds if you don't want to know anything about it. But she gives a, 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 a class at Juilliard and is dealing with a student who uh, has issues with old dead white composers. My problem was that he was such a paper tiger, the student. I mean, it wasn't like he said, I don't like Wagner because he's so anti-Semitic and Hitler embraced him or somebody who was horrible and hateful or owned enslaved people. He like doesn't like Bach or Beethoven because he had a lot of kids. I mean, really? (laughs) Yeah, that's 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 the tip. That's the villain, the villainous woke student that she wants to take down and mock and belittle. It just, if it had been an actual, real, nuanced discussion of something about that, that would have been a lot more interesting to me. Instead, the student was an idiot and presented as such. And then she takes him down and she is hateful in the way she does it. You know, she doesn't need to belittle him, but it's just, you know, come on. A real actual debate of nuance would have been a lot more interesting and realistic than that sort of, oh, I don't like Bach because he had a lot of kids. I mean, come on. He had like eight or nine kids. By the way, five of them died, you know, at birth or very young, which happened a lot in those days. So really only had like four kids who made it past childhood. So not so awful in that context, but Anyway, but so I thought it was, I had lots of issues with the film. Well acted, well made as such, but really the third act especially fell apart for me. But an Admiral film and the actress who played her wife in the movie, Cape Unchess Wife, I thought was very good. I apologize for not knowing her name. A few other films we caught up with, Bros, the queer rom-com, that's tapping out at about $13 million worldwide. The Spanish animated film, Tad, The Lost Explorer, and The Emerald Tablet, that's made $30 million worldwide, pretty much tripling its reported budget and an independent film that's doing very well commercially martin mcdonough's film the banishees of inishiran sure to be an oscar contender that's already at 10 million dollars worldwide sometimes it's hard to track those really small movies as they grow like it was in england but not here and wasn't on the worldwide charts quite right away and so we lost track of it we can't tell you how much it made compared to last week but right now it is at 10 million dollars worldwide so we talk a lot about box office and i think martin scorsese had something to say about that he was complaining he thinks it's awful and distorting and wrong that people focus so much on the box office i think he means regular people and the regular news papers, obviously not variety in the Hollywood Reporter, but he feels like the art of cinema is degraded when all people talk about or predominantly or originally is what did it cost and how much did it make? Thoughts? Uh, I, I, can, I, I can understand where he's coming from. And yet at the same time, one of the 
conundrums, if you will, the catch-22s, if you will, is that to make a movie, it costs a lot of money, especially where he makes movies, Martin Scorsese, in New York City very often, uh, where there are unions and it, you know, it, it adds to the cost. And because of that, uh, you, you need to track how these movies do. You need to focus on that at, at some point. Well, not uh, as and, art, not if you're a fan uh, watching, going to a movie okay, on the yes. weekend or a critic. I don't think he means the studios and the and exhibitors shouldn't talk about box office. He means in general, movies are discussed almost dominantly about leading with the box office. What, what you know, Black Panther was made so much money. That's the first thing people say. Well, think about it. It's like, what's, it, what's, the, what's the rating on the tomato meter? You know, what's, how much money did it make? Oh, it must be good. Uh, you know, that's pretty much how people are, are measuring things. You know, you mentioned and that I went to- he thinks that's bad. Yeah, and you mentioned that I went to uh, all these colleges with my daughter, listening to some of these admissions officers talk about, oh, we don't use grade point average. We don't use, uh, or, you know, the, the rate of acceptance is a misleading represent, you know, we don't do go They don't want to that. talk about the college rankings. Yeah, I'm is like, that what, well. Is that what you mean? Oh, yeah. oh, okay, you don't want to talk about that, but that's the way things are being measured today, so. Well, you really shouldn't use college rankings because they're a crock, so. Yes, they do I have a point. <laughs> not the, the college is, rankings, no, but they're not. No, the college rankings to... are a crock, yes, they are. The the classic U.S. News and World Report college rankings oh, I'm, are I'm, completely no, I'm distorted about, now. I'm talking about uh, the, the standardized testing and the, the grade point average versus the. Well, there's lots of problems with standardized testing, too. Right, exactly. But anyway, um, Martin Scorsese says he thinks it's gross to talk about box office. I'll bet Spielberg doesn't. <laughs> mic, mic drop. <laughs> but Martin Scorsese, when you look at his chart, uh, a, a good half, if not slightly more, are commercially successful. And actually, in the last 10 years, he's had more winners. than Hugo lost a lot of money, but, you know, The Wolf of Wall Street and Leonardo DiCaprio and some other movies, they've made a lot of money. The Last Temptation of Christ was a box office winner. So his story isn't so bad. So I don't think it's sour grapes because his movies are not huge box office hits. In fact, Taxi Driver, Last Temptation, The Wolf of Wall Street, those were winners, though one of his best movies. Goodfellas was not a, a commercial hit at the box office, but like those early movies we talked about, uh, they were a success. I think ultimately, I think Goodfellas was a good movie to have made for the price that they made it. But yeah, if you don't want to talk about box office, make all your movies for $5 million. Yeah, <laughs> correct. And by the way, thanks to Deadline for a great roundup of worldwide titles. They've been doing it the last few weeks. They put out a China story. They put out a Korea story. They've been consistent about it. I'm not always seeing that in the trade, so it's really appreciated. China year to date, with all those closings, it's at about $3.8 billion versus almost double that. North America is at over $6 billion. China is down 60% from 2019, so it's nowhere near where it could or should be. But that's the pandemic for you. A lot of people, of course, are laying off uh, people in the last few weeks. Warner Look Brothers at us. Discovery. We laid off our entire staff. Our entire <laughs> yeah. staff. Three-week vacation, everybody. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> unpaid, unpaid. Yes, yeah, so Warner Brothers Discovery is firing people left and right. The Gannett newspaper chain is doing a hiring freeze, slashing benefits, encouraging people to quit. It took $16 million in government money and then spent millions of dollars on stock buybacks. Now it's selling off assets. That's why stock buybacks should be illegal like they were before Reagan took office. You should not be able to use your company profits to buy stock buybacks. It's just a dead end that serves no good purpose. It used to be against the law. CNN is firing people. They're cutting back on original programming made with outside companies. They've had a lot of success with that. And now from going forward, they're like, if it ain't in-house, we're pretty much not interested. 
Yeah, I mean, biggest, this, I, this I get mm-hmm. and I don't get. It's like, those are the shows that people tuned in for. Now, yeah. I mean, now you're, so you're basically saying, okay, so I can avoid you unless there's a hurricane or some war or it's, it's an election day. Well, I don't need like to watch NBC, it. It's like NBC or CBS. They want to make 90% of their stuff in-house only or a big co-production deal. They want a piece of the pie when they're putting a show on the air and that's the trend now in scene and they're not going to be interested unless they have a significant or perhaps a majority stake in the programming they're putting on the air. But that the has nothing, news, but, but that decision isn't necessarily because of that. Yes, I agree that that is is happening. Uh, the CNN decision has everything to do, and I'm sure we'll no, talk I'm about s- this. No, I'm saying CNN is doing what CBS and NBC do. Right. And no, ABC. I understand that. But uh-huh. CNN is doing it for a, an altogether different reason, and that just has to, to do sa- with- Just to save money? Yes, they are 100% doing this to save money because- David Zasloff came in and said, I'm going to save $3 billion. Somebody said, hey, do you want to look at the books before you make that announcement? That's true. But some of the most profitable programming they've put on the air that can repeat and work again and again and be repackaged and used on streaming has been properties made by outside companies that they have had little or no stake in. And they've said, wow, if we're going to do something like create a thing devoted to movies in the 70s or food around the world, maybe we should be owning it. Yeah, but the thing is, they even said they even said no more original programming, even if we I mean, they basically said to to the anchors this week, hey, it has to be in house. It has to be in house. I know they're cutting back a lot of ways, but they are continuing to do original programming. Perhaps they'll do a lot less uh, and it will only be in house or mostly in house. But uh, that would be a shame because they're uh, they, they don't have enough stuff to fill up the hours. And that worked really well for them. But there's the biggest news in the industry. I thought you might have something to say. And that came at D.C. They had the number one film at the box office poor reviews but it got good box office and they have finally found people to be in charge it's a duo just like they had at warner brothers for many years it's director james gunn of guardians of the galaxy and producer peter saffron they are the new co-heads of dc we don't have to discuss the flow chart of who reports to whom but this is a loss for marvel i would say and perhaps payback for when they broke with james gunn too quickly back when old jokes done a decade ago uh, blew up in his face even though he apologized for them immediately i think we said they reacted too quickly at the time and in fact they did um we we wanted to base you know punishment of people on what they're doing today not what they might have done 10 or 20 years ago have they changed and grown he had anyway that might be a little bit of payback for them we now have a two-headed beast at the head of DC, or maybe a good partnership with James Gunn in charge of creative and Saffron, the business side. Now, the Joker movie is outside their purview. They got a sequel coming out, which is a musical. So perhaps is the Batman universe created by Matt Reeves. That's two big things already not under their purview. Uh, yeah. but oh, they by the way, to- a- anything with Superman? Yeah, that's also outside. The- you know what? If it has no, a superhero, I don't believe it is. I- no, I'm no, joking. no. Superman I'm is. Joking. Well, don't joke about that I'm because joking. Batman is and Joker isn't. And Joker is, but Superman is not. They are, they've worked together on the Suicide Squad, which got good reviews, decent reviews, and a TV series spinoff from that called The Peacemaker. And Saffron, of course, oversaw the Conjuring franchise, which became a $2 billion behemoth. What are your thoughts? Is this a great move, a positive move? Are you worried about two people? Or you're like, oh, let's see what happens. I, I'm a, let's see what happens, you know, because it could go either way. I, I think part of the problem is you ha- right now you have uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, who's basically saying we need to make more great content on less money. And it's just like the weirdest way to go about it. It's 
They, I think they're, they're saying they want to bet big on big franchises. They want to make more Lord of the Rings. They want to make more Harry Potter. They haven't made a Superman movie in 15 years. And they're saying, maybe we should be doing more of that. Why aren't we? So I think that's, I don't think they're saying they want to make a Superman movie for $40 million. I'm just thinking we need to take big swings on big stuff and not just deal with a bunch of, you know, Suicide Squad and secondary things. You know, why aren't we focusing on our big, big breadwinners over the last 20 years? But maybe I'm misunderstanding that. But I think it's a good win for them in terms of James Gunn. I thought the guy they had in charge was doing a great job in terms Walter of commercially. Hamana. Yeah, so they were fools to push him out. But that's a different issue. Now they've got James Gunn and, and Peter Safran. They've worked together as a team before. They can presumably work together again. People love James Gunn. Spielberg just named Guardians of the Galaxy one of his 20 favorite films of all time. It's really? a wonderful life. The Godfather, Guardians of the Galaxy. I was right up there in his top 10. So that was interesting. And I think a lot of Hollywood probably feels the same. That it was a, not that it's one of the 10 best films of all time, but they love it and they love him. So I think that was a win for them and kind of a loss for Marvel, but it'll be all right in the end. Uh, yeah, and I do think you're absolutely right, Michael. I do think that that, that incident where, you know, he, he told a joke on Twitter and he was like testing more than, jokes. More than one, more than yeah. one, but he was very young in his career. They were obnoxious and vile. He apologized for them and took them down. And we yeah. do not have a history of him being abusive at work. We do not have a history of people complaining about his behavior. Uh, they were offensive and stupid. And he said they were and has not done it again. So given a decade of that and his actual behavior on film sets, that was an overreaction at the time. Yeah, and I think uh, when it came time to whether do I part with Marvel uh, and go and take this DC job, I'm sure that played into it. I will say that it was uh, Kevin Feige saying, you know, James Gunn still owes us one movie. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's still doing. He's like, oh, he's going to be busy. <laughs> yeah, because they got the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special, which looked had a very funny trailer with Kevin Bacon involved, and they have a Guardians of the Galaxy three, I believe, coming out, and he will be doing that. Uh, so that's cool and interesting. Another reboot and remake on the way: The Naked Gun. There's going to be a reboot of The Naked Gun, uh, uh, not with Leslie Nielsen, but with Liam Neeson. And if you think that's a weird choice, I suggest you watch the final season of Dairy Girls. A three-season series. I like it a lot. It was on Netflix. The first two seasons were perfect, practically. Season three, not as strong, but a good, solid season. It ends very well, and Liam Neeson is very funny in almost cameos in, 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 in an episode. Very, very funny. He appears in two. In one of them, he's pretty hilarious. So that but, doesn't come out of left field for me. But despite all the violence, you know this is going to be rated NC-17. I mean, yes, it's got guns in it, but the naked, the nudity stuff, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not bad, not bad. By the way, the most reason I'm excited by this is not Liam Neeson, but the fact that they might finally put the TV show Police Squad out on streaming. That is one of the great TV shows of all time. It makes the Naked Gun movies look like dog poo, which they are comparatively. Uh, it's funnier than Airplane. It is the masterpiece of the that, that, that comedy team. It's so good. It's so great, and I have it on DVD, but I'd love to point people to it, and if they could just stream it on Paramount+, Plus, that would be great. So I'm hoping that that will happen. I'm also hoping— You know, at, at uh, Show East this year, they gave out No Time to Die Blu-ray DVDs. So it was like a DVD Blu-ray. People were like, what 
do. I do it. I do this. with this. <laughs> yeah. Give me a key to get in it online. I hope that comes to pass for police squad. And I, and I hope we should, I should not have used the word crazy talk for Kanye West because I forgot, I didn't forget, but I didn't realize in the context that of course he is bipolar. So I apologize for that in the introduction. The guy does have mental health issues. I always try to keep that upper in mind, but he is an adult. He's out functioning in the world and he's saying hateful things. And so there is responsibility to be had for that, even keeping in context that the guy has health issues in terms of being bipolar. So Kanye West got in a lot of dirt for yet another series of anti-Semitic tweets. So did some basketball players. Kim Kardashian took the high road this latest time. And you know you're in trouble when a Kardashian gets to take the high road on you. So his lawyer has left him. CAA dumped him as a client. A documentary film that they've been working on for years has just been shelved, and pretty much everyone is putting distance between themselves and West. Uh, fashion companies, J.P. Morgan Chase, on and on. His line for Adidas. This is where it gets serious. That generated $2 billion in sales every year since they began it, and they have cut ties with him and said in an earnings call that that would take about a $250 million hit off their bottom line this year. That ain't something you do lightly. Gap also cut ties with him. Later, he showed up at the headquarters of a shoe company, Skechers, with a film crew. They had to escort him from the building and release an, a press release saying, he showed up unannounced, he was not invited, and we have nothing to do with him. So why are all these companies suddenly saying taking action against Kanye West? It's very simple. They did not get a conscience. It's fear. When one big company takes a step and says, you know what? We can't deal with him anymore. This is bad for our bottom line. Everybody else sort of panicked and acted the same. I think it's just a herd mentality. They're not all suddenly developing a conscience. They'd rather have that $2 billion clothing line. But everybody panicked and said, hmm, maybe we're going to be on the wrong side on this one and we don't want to be. So once it catches fire, it steamrolls. It does, they should have done this, but they should have also done it long ago. But you wish the guy gets the treatment and the help he needs, but that doesn't excuse his ugly, ugly behavior. You know, I, I agree with you. And it's a shame because I, I and I also agree with something else you said. Mental illness is is an illness. It is a disease. Yeah. And but it's uh, not a get out of jail free card not, in terms it, of your no. behavior. Yeah. In fact, uh, and I wish I could remember the documentary I saw where it was it was filmed inside a, a psychiatric uh, hospital where one of the the character characters, one of the patients they followed, uh, would start making these noises and hitting himself on the head. Not not you know damaging himself, but every time he started this little, this routine, which he couldn't help doing he wanted to mm. stop he just couldn't help doing it he was put like Tourette's yeah. yeah he was put in this one room and the door was closed behind him and so it got to the point where when it started rather than wait for them uh, wait for he just you know, walked the, to the door he just walked to the door was like come on come on let's get it over with put me in the room I can't stop this and it's almost the same thing with bipolar disorder it's like do you think Kanye West does does he think all of these things I don't know but I do know he can't control much like Charlie Sheen he they can't control it it's 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 a horrible illness I, well, I, yeah, I don't know that 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 bipolar affects your anti-Semitism. You can be bipolar, or you can be healthy and still be be filled with hate towards True. other groups. So I'm not gonna, I'm not sure that bipolar forces you to make anti-Semitic comments. Most people who are bipolar, I assume, do not spew hate. So maybe you're saying it's akin to Tourette's. I don't know, but he's paying public consequences for his public actions, and that's probably best. And 
I'm glad that happened and maybe he'll get uh, the treatment he needs. By the way, if you want to look at mentally ill people, the best place to go is not, uh, you know, uh, insane asylums or whatever they're called today to be polite, mental health institutions. It's mostly the prison system where I believe over 50% of the people have mental health issues, which is a crime and a dreadful thing. And it shows that we're housing the mentally ill in prisons, this horrible dehumanizing atmosphere. But that's a story for a different day, but it does segue us right into our legal section. Harvey Weinstein is on trial again, even as he serves a lengthy prison term for being convicted of sexual assault or whatever the charges were of sexual misconduct. Danny Masterson, the actor from That 70s Show, his rape and sexual assault trial is in progress even as we speak. Paul Haggis, his rape trial has begun, I believe. They've just approached, uh, they're getting ready to the final summation. Kevin Spacey went on trial and it's over. He was found not liable. Being not found not liable under the law is not the same as being found not guilty or somebody saying, oh, he's innocent. Sadly, uh, you know, sorry, you don't get a free pass just because you didn't go to jail or were found guilty in a civil trial of what you did. The ugliness spewed against uh, actor Anthony Rapp by Kevin Spacey and his lawyers is kind of absurd. And a man in Rent and a TV series is, is painted as, you know, sexually jealous, self-hating, jealous of Kevin Spacey's career, all this ugly nonsense There's just no reason to think Anthony Rapp made up this story whatsoever, and multiple other men have come forward. So in the court of public opinion, Kevin Spacey is still guilty of sexual misconduct. Sorry about that. Cuba Gooding Jr., however, pled guilty. He was accused of sexually harassing and forcibly kissing women in restaurants and bars. One woman in particular came forward and sued him. He has pled guilty to a misdemeanor. He has spent six months of counseling for alcohol and behavior. He stayed out of trouble. He will not have a criminal record, and hopefully he will have the help he needs to not do that again. Chris Albrecht of HBO, and now Legendary. Has he done something bad new? No, but we knew for a long time that he has a history of dismissive attitudes towards women. He has physically assaulted an employee who worked under him. He choked her, and then he mocked her to other employees. And he was also accused of physically assaulting and choking a girlfriend. Legendary knew all this, and they hired him anyway. Employees at Legendary said, wow, we have reservations because, you know, misogynist. But they hired him anyway. But a new book is coming out reminding everyone of his history. And now suddenly Legendary has put him on administrative lead. Yeah, this was, was, Mm -hmm. you know, essentially... Uh, a lot of people are looking at Legendary saying, you got a huge problem because you hired him with all of this being known. It was very public. It was self-inflicted wound, a self-inflicted wound. Yeah. Yeah. Scrubs co-executive producer, Eric Weinberg, he was denied bail and taken into custody on multiple rape charges. CBS and disgraced CEO, Les Moonves are paying a combined $32 million, give or take a million for hiding allegations, attempting to silence victims, lying to the public and misleading investors all over Les Moonves's sexual misconduct over the years. And finally, and most sweetly, Alex Jones has been ordered to pay nearly $1 billion to Sandy Hook families. Remember, their children were slaughtered in an unspeakable tragedy, and then Alex Jones intentionally lied to the world, saying they were faking it all, and the families found themselves hounded and facing death threats, being accused of dismembering their own children and more. And I don't know what you call what he does, but it ain't media and it ain't journalism. It's just profiting off misery and woe. So, good to see. It's profiteering. I mean, ultimately, uh, and unfortunately, uh, the way Alex Jones has set his companies up, he's basically said, oh, well, that company's bankrupt, so I can't, you know. Well, they're also able to personally sue him. I believe he's not going to escape because of 
uh, you know, shell games like that, but we shall see. It is certainly is hard. They will never get $1 billion. His, his businesses will perhaps collapse, or maybe he'll still be able to make millions of dollars like he has because he's been wildly wealthy off peddling his lies and hate, but we'll see what happens. You're right. It can be difficult to collect, but it also complicates his life tremendously. Now, while you were on and, your and trip- And by the way, for those saying, oh, well, look, look, you know, you're, you're free speech, you're, you're ruining this man. Yes. I will say yeah, yeah. Nick, Nick Denton, okay? If you recall Nick Denton and Gawker, I'm not saying he was any better. I'm just saying that that business was pretty much obliterated by a lawsuit. Just right, like but that was th- that was an argument on the on the other side that people said uh, a billionaire used their money to target him, target that business, and try and find anyone that they could. Uh, the argument was that, well, nonetheless, publishing a sex tape of Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think it was. No, it was I think Hulk oh, no, Hogan it was, uh, or Vin Diesel, not, not Hulk Hogan. It was the other guy. It was the uh, the governor Jesse Ventura, or was it Hulk Hogan? I think it was Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan, the union busting guy who I'm not a fan of either. But yes, whatever was going on with Gawker, people felt there that, oh, a billionaire targeted them and looked around for a lawsuit so they could pummel them into the ground because they didn't like them. And they saw that as a potential free speech. In this case, it's Alex Jones bringing it on himself by publishing lies and hate. Uh, That's not journalism. You know, it's very, a very gray area. You want to be careful. This isn't a close call. He knew he was lying. He was spreading hate. He was getting people to target families suffering the most unbelievable tragedy and making their lives already a living hell unimaginably worse, which is really hard to do when you've lost your child in a gun shooting, in a school shooting. But he managed to make their lives exponentially worse through spreading lies and hate that he profited from. And that's really not a free speech issue. You're not free to yell fire in a crowded theater. You're not free to do a number of things when it comes to speech. It's never been absolute. And this case, in a court of law, they found that he was guilty and good for that. While you were away on your trip, Sperling, did you stream anything? Did you get on your laptop and watch a movie or TV show? I had no time to do so, unfortunately. (laughs) Did you have a profitable trip? Was it a good and a satisfying one? Certainly for business. And then I assume with your daughter, you bonded. Yes. You saw schools. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, you know, while you were away, we had three weeks of streaming numbers and that's going to be our inside baseball. But at the actual numbers, we had another few weeks of streaming and more records are being set. Now, Nielsen reports on Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Hulu, Netflix, and Apple. It only reports on what people are watching on their smart TVs in the United States. So this is a very small subset. Well, it's a big subset, but it's a subset. I watch all my stuff on my laptop. So this is not the total numbers of viewing for any of these shows. It does really complicate it, but it's the best metric we have. And over the few weeks while you were away, the Disney Plus movie Hocus Pocus 2 was viewed in one week by 2.7 billion minutes, the most ever for a movie since they've been tracking it. And it wasn't even Halloween yet. This was for the week ending October 2nd. And that's not even the biggest property of the last few weeks that would be ryan murphy's you know new franchise monster in this case focusing on jeffrey dahmer a grotesque serial killer i don't know why it would have to get really high critical ratings for me want to watch a movie about jeffrey dahmer but people just glommed onto it the first week 3.6 billion minutes viewed the second week it jumped to 4.3 billion minutes in its third week 2.3 billion minutes uh just in one week alone it's at the all-time record for a single week's viewing it's in the top 10 i should say i believe there's a tiger king episode that's bigger a couple others but huge numbers in three weeks we're looking at 7.9 9.9 10.2 billion minutes viewed in three weeks guess what the lord of the Rings series the most expensive of all time it's only at five billion minutes right now and that's probably a success story 
and talking about the franchises, House of the Dragon and Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, are trading back a lead in this particular measurement. Though it looks like the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power is edging it out, but House of Dragons has more episodes. So we'll have to see where they end up. And we know that House of the Dragon has more viewing on HBO and HBO Max that isn't tracked necessarily by what's going on here. And something... Heartbreaking for me, Andor, the Star Wars series Andor, is trending down after our first few weeks. This is the best show on TV right now that I'm watching. I think it's great. I have seen eight of 12 episodes, and I can't believe how good it is. I really love it. Now, I know you used to watch Westworld, Sperling. Do you still do it? I, you know, I haven't watched it in a while, and I am looking forward to catching up with it, actually. Well, good luck, because it's been canceled. HBO yeah, but it's still canceled. on HBO, isn't it? I mean, it's still on no, HBO. No, it's canceled. Max. There's no more seasons. No more. They're done. Four no, seasons it, and they're done. It's, it's still on it's HBO over. Max, right? Well, but there will, you can watch the old episodes, but they're not going to make a season five or six. It's over. Well, they better the figure out a canceled. way to... Uh, wow. Wrap so they're just going like, to leave it. They're not going to wrap it up. Nope. It's all done. So uh, the, the Hollywood Reporter had a headline, Why HBO Canceled Westworld? The I can tell was, you why. Because it cost for a- the price. <laughs> ratings for the pricey drama shrank from twelve million to four million. Yeah, done. Probably, yeah. <laughs> there you go. I don't need to read the article. You're right. It was incredibly expensive, and the, the ratings fell out from under it. It was an artistic mess. It really people fell fell apart in the third and fourth season, and people stopped watching. So that'll happen. <laughs> But I think it's a big deal. You know, these shows come and they go. People get wedded to them. You like to try to end a show properly so that it can be more valuable as reruns or as a binging thing. It's not so satisfying when you want to binge a series like Westworld and there's no ending. So you, you maybe they need a two-hour movie. They probably couldn't wrap it up by then. But it is hard when you don't get to end a show properly. That's a new skill you got to have. And in this case, they have dropped the ball. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, do a couple more episodes, wrap up the series. They're just not going to do it. Um, That's a shame. Yep. But uh, I said big deal. I said big deal. I was too, like, sad to, like, (laughs) to be honest. You know, like, I wish I had paid more attention and I would have been, you know, all votes count. You know, all views count. Everybody vote. We're recording on a Monday. The election will be Tuesday. You will be either happy or sad on Tuesday after all the election results are in. And maybe you'll listen to our show to give you a little, you know, a little comfort food while you deal with what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, Westworld ended in August and it's all over. You say that uh, as, as if uh, people will need comforting. Well, some may, and some won't. Those who find us annoyingly progressive and liberal will be laughing, and those who are more sympathetic to our views will, will be a little sad, too. By the well, way, the House of Representatives has switched hands in three of the last four elections, so if it happens again, that will not be the most shocking development. That will be kind of par for the course in the last five elections. If they don't win at least like 40 House seats, it's not exactly a red wave. And if the Dems keep the Senate, which is incredibly hard to do because they have a zero lead, it's (laughs) 50-50. If they lose one seat, they've lost the Senate. If they can keep the Senate, that will be an amazing win. So, yes, I'm changing the goalposts right at the end, but tough. Well, you you mentioned uh, Big Deal, and it is indeed time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Now, here's a prediction for you, okay? Ooh, ooh. The Bruno Mars, Anderson Pock celebration called Silk Sonic will not be nominated for Grammy's Album of the Year when nominations <gasps> are announced on November. Yep, they're not going to be nominated on November but, 15th. Yeah. But- 
Well, recent news stories predicted another album of the year showdown between Adele and Beyonce with Kendrick Lamar in the mix as well. But odds makers also saw it just as likely that Silk Sonic or Harry Styles might steal the thunder. No, 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 no. That's not going to happen because not the smooth talking lover boys. No, no. Bruno Mars announced they would not be submitting their album for consideration this year because they'd already been honored last year when their singles won every Grammy they were up for, including, by the way, record and song of the year. This is what Mars said. He said, (laughs) we truly put all... put our I love all. I love this. We yeah, sorry, get it right. We it's very funny. I love this. <laughs> we truly put our all on this record, but Silk Sonic would like to gracefully, humbly, and most importantly, sexually bow out of submitting over our <laughs> album this year. We hope we can celebrate with everyone on a great year of music and partake in the party. Thank you for letting Silk Sonic thrive. So, big deal or big whoop? Well, I think it's a big whoop on awards in general, but I think it's a big deal and I don't need to second guess them. Uh, Now, some people said, oh, they're worried that if they won, people would be angry at them for beating out Beyonce. You know, like the last time they did uh, where Bruno Mars won album of the year for his album 24 Karat Magic. He beat out Jay-Z and Kendrick Lamar, whose album Damn went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. So and at that point, the Mars win was seen as yesterday's news. And I agree with that. Uh, So Variety called this a savvy career move to bow out. Um, no, you know, there's no need to second guess this. Take them at their word because they premiered Silk Sonic two years ago on the Grammys. They got a time slot before they even had a song out. Then last year, they won four major awards, including two of the biggest. They were all over the place. They performed again. So then to have a third year and to maybe win Album of the Year, that would look a little you know, ugh. You know, it's like, no, like me, we've had me, enough. me, me, me. Right. Yeah. And I think he's right. We got all the joy and celebration last year. We don't need to do it again. It would be tacky and it would be uncool. And I don't think it's about fear of beating somebody else out. It's just saying, yeah, you know what? We've had enough. We, we, we had our party. And it's a big decision because while he has won Album of the Year, Anderson Pock and perhaps other collaborators who also would have enjoyed that Album of the Year Grammy did not, have not won Album of the Year yet. So it's pretty significant. But you know what? This year, the music that is honored at the Grammys must be released by September 30th. The nominations will be announced in a few days on November 15th. Now, albums out after the deadline... Uh, but long before the Grammys are held on February 5th, will not be eligible. The problem is every year, some of the biggest albums of the year come out in November and December because of the Thanksgiving, Black Friday holiday season and the Christmas shopping season. So they're just killing themselves with their calendar. You're always going to have a gap from when you have to close the nominations and then have the award ceremony. There's always going to be a three or four month gap, but it should come early in the year, not in November and December. That's insane. Hold the Grammys in May or June. Let them lead into the summer touring season and the song of the summer season. And so albums out by December could be eligible. Guess what? Already out and not eligible for this year's Grammys or coming out? Taylor Swift, the biggest album of the year. Bruce Springsteen, Charlie Puth, Gorillaz, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Arctic Monkeys, Carly Rae Jepsen, Smashing Monkeys, one of my favorite brands, Way's Blood. Yeah, they wouldn't get nominated. But my God, we're going to have to wait 16 months for Taylor Swift's new album, Midnighters, to be eligible Midnighters for the or big Midnight? Grammys. Midnights or Midnights or whatever it's called. I think she was told, look, you have to have your album in by midnight for it to count for a Grammy. She said, right, put the name Midnight on it. She has immediately had the biggest album of the year, the biggest week of the year for an album, both in sales and streaming, the most, I think, 
physical products sold already just from one week. Uh, don't hold me to that, but certainly it will be. And I, it certainly set a one week record. She has the entire top 10 are songs by Taylor Swift. Now that's the first time ever that's happened. Drake had nine of the top 10 just a year ago. And of course the Beatles back in 1964 had the top five. That's how hard that has been. Even with all the changes, they're only beating this now. So the Beatles having the top five, which was so cool back 60 years ago. And now Taylor Swift has the entire top 10 and we could be honoring this album in may which would be very natural and good the grammys really need to move the grammy ceremony i know may and june is problematic you got olympics you got stuff you got baseball Pe- people are matter. outside it's yeah it, but it doesn't matter do yeah. it in march do it in march screwing, you got plenty of screwing time screwing over november and december is ridiculous you're shooting yourself in the foot and junk like bruno mars and taylor swift having to wait 16 months and feeling like who cares anymore which would be fair. So they really need to change their calendar. Well, you know, something else is changing. The performing rights organization, BMI, is changing to a for-profit model. Like the not-for-profit ASCAP, the job of BMI is to collect royalties for songwriters and publishers based on airplay on the radio and bars at sporting events and, and, you know, those kinds of uh, venues. The money is then distributed back to the rights holders. Newer performing rights organizations like CSAC and Global Music Rights are for-profit companies. BMI says being a not-for-profit kept it from finding a buyer and stymied business deals. It couldn't raise financing to invest in technology and other ideas because the money coming in was supposed to go right back out again. Now it can make strategic moves that will benefit BMI and the songwriters and the publishers it represents, or, you know, at least... That's the idea. Big deal or big whoop? I have no idea. Neither do I. I'm not sure if this means they're going to be in a different legal category or whether as a for-profit company, they will have a different mindset. Other companies are doing it. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea. ASCAP is still not for profit. If right. you know, and you want to, sh- I tried to find out an idea of whether this seemed like a good idea and where people stood on it. And I was at a loss. If you've got an opinion, please share it to us. Sperling gave you the info. It ain't easy to make it on Broadway, okay? Phantom or no Phantom, which, by the way, you want to talk about ads. Yikes, Phantom of the Opera (laughs) ads are all over the place in New York City right now. The Pulitzer Prize-winning musical A Strange Loop announced it will close in January after just nine months on Broadway, making it the third shortest run for a Tony-winning best musical in history. It joins Dear Evan Hansen, which closed in September, Come From Away, which closed in October. The Music Man and Beetlejuice will both be closing in January. And Phantom of the Opera, as I just mentioned, closing in February. Don't fret too much. Hanson, Come From Away, and Phantom, they were all huge hits and hugely profitable. The Music Man was a sure thing, so to speak, which just didn't click, especially when Hugh Jackman wasn't around. And A Strange Loop was always a bold roll of the dice. It was always, to me, well, I'll let you explain it, Michael, but... Does this mean that because, you know, it wasn't kind of a mainstream musical that it's a big whoop when it closes? Or what do you think? Uh, I think it's a big whoops. Close, uh, shows will always close. Uh, but I was annoyed by the media coverage because they said things like, it's the shortest run in memory. 
I'm like, well, there's only like 60 years of Tony Award history. You can check all the things. So I went and did the work. The shortest run for a Tony-winning Best Musical was Stephen Sondheim's Passion, which ran for 280 performances back in the 1994-1995 season. And boy, was that a great show. I loved it. I saw it twice. Hallelujah Baby from 1967 ran for 293 performances. And A Strange Loop ran for 314 performances. So do the work, people. Um, but yes, it was a roll of the dice. It was bold. I did not see it off Broadway, so I can't speak to it. But I did see Ain't No Mo, which I loved. I saw it at the public. It's a great show, and it's coming to Broadway, and it's the next similar gamble. And not just because it features a talented black creative artist in charge. Uh, it's an outrageous, over-the-top puncturing of race and class. And uh, it's it's a real gamble. I saw it and thought, this is the perfect venue for it. I'm not sure I would invest on this if it went to Broadway. But I wish it the best of luck. It was one of my favorite shows of that year. Uh, but you know, you got always new hits are coming. Almost Famous probably didn't get the reviews it needed. And K-pop is oh, up did next. It, uh, what, was it, what, did Almost Famous come out? Uh, yes, it opened. Oh, yes, November opened. 4th. That's right. Yeah, I, I have to say, I know a lot of people. Well, okay, I know like maybe five people who have seen that now. Some uh -huh. of whom walked out and didn't wow. watch the second that has act. to be really bad to walk out. Good Lord, yeah. the prices you pay. Um, well, so here's the, the question. So did Sondheim's Passion win Best Musical? That's... That's the category we're talking Got about. It. Okay. The shortest run for shows that won Best Musical. The shortest run ever is Stephen Sondheim's Passion. It's the first new show of his that I saw in New York. The first new show I ever saw by Stephen Sondheim. You know, old revivals I'd seen. But that was the first time I got to sit down, see a Sondheim show, and, and just watch it, not knowing anything about it. And oh my God, I loved it. <laughs> well, not since Elvis shaved his head, which is always, you always want to start a sentence that way. Okay. Yes. Whatever it is, you know, if it's been a long time, not since Elvis shaved his head. That's pretty much one. But in this case, it actually applies because not since Elvis shaved his head has a pop star entering the military made this much noise. Yes, it's official. The BTS army must resign itself to the fact that Korea's biggest band and arguably, by the way, the biggest band in the world is joining the real army. All Koreans are obligated to perform some military service, but Many athletes and artists get a pass due to their public contributions to Korean culture and the like. Some thought BTS might get a pass, but instead the band members just announced they would all serve in the military, complete their public duty, and slide back in. They'd reconvene the band in 2025 for what I will predict will be the biggest world tour in history. Big deal <laughs> or big whoop? I think it's a big deal. A lot of artists get a pass, and they are not doing that. If the military has half a brain, they'll turn it into a reality show and make joining the military seem cool. You know, yes. why not keep them together in basic training, film the damn thing, show what they're going through, you know, make the most of it, baby. Don't give them any special treatment. Just have cameras watching them all the time. I can't believe they wouldn't do it. If they don't, they should be fired. <laughs> You're all fired, all you military people. I think it's just begging to be done. I think it's smart. They should all go in at the same time, be in the same unit and, or follow them. And maybe some will be in the Air Force and some of the Army, whatever the story is, it would be worth following and best if they do it all at the same time i think that would just be genius pr for the military and for the band i am uh i would want to be in the uh the the star force <laughs> I, I, that's, that's i don't know if stargirl is in the star force but it's a good try 
Well, okay. Oh, Star. Yeah, actually, Star Girl. Okay, this is when I saw this. You mean I Space was, Force? Yeah, Space Force. Is that what I said? Star Force or Space Force? You said Star Force. It's probably an anime series. Anyway, oh. going well, on Space to Space Force story. is what I meant. So my, my joke <laughs> was really bad, actually. So bad it was way <laughs> off. Uh, I, was, it's, I said Star Force because I'm looking at this story about Star Girl, which I had no idea even existed. And now it's no more. The not-so-secret identity of Courtney Whitmore, Stargirl, the TV series, began on the streaming site DC Universe. Episodes aired on the CW the next day, and when the streamer shut down, the CDCW renewed the series for two more seasons. Now the show is coming to a close after season three. Also ending the season on the CW are the shows Nancy Drew, The Flash, and Riverdale, What's left then? Uh, well, well, a prequel, I guess, to Supernatural and a lot of cheaper programming as its new owners decided they'd like to channel, you know, to finally, what's the best word for it? Make a profit. That's what they want. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop, of course. Uh, sorry for the people involved. However, uh, there's also um, the Walker, Texas Ranger and a spinoff from that show. So Supernatural has spread out into uh, three different shows, I think, in terms of the stars from that show. But as The Hollywood Reporter points out, the CW was not designed to make a profit on its own. It was sort of a lost leader engineered as a platform for both CBS Studios and Warner Brothers. And they both made billions of dollars off of shows created for the CW thanks to shh, foreign sales. And a $1 billion output deal at Netflix. Foreign sales are the big secret. Just the way Hollywood hated to talk about DVD and Blu-ray sales, they never wanted to discuss how much money they were making there because at one point, it was bigger than the box office. That's how big a draw it was. And foreign sales for TV shows, a huge market. And boy, would we love access to some numbers. If you know any way to get numbers about what shows are making overseas, uh, you know, send it to us. We'll keep you anonymous. Uh, Maybe yeah. that's a little inside baseball. Yeah, it kind of is, actually. And you know what? Actually, it's a good thing you mentioned that because inside baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, I know we're going to be talking about streaming, okay? It's affecting almost every part of the entertainment business in one way or another. And I have to say, every newsletter I get, and I get a lot of them. Yes, I get <laughs> so many of them. We're at peak newsletter, by the way. Yeah. OMG. Oh, like everything is about the streaming and how everything is imploding and how every single media company and entertainment company, their stock is off and it all has to do with streaming. It's the streamer's fault. Oh, I'm, oh what are they going to do? And all I can say is, hey, remember when money was free and you could like get a loan and then turn that around and like put it into stocks and the stock would go up like 4% and the loan interest was like 1.5 or 2%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's not the case anymore. So nobody has any cash and thus the stock market is going down for everyone. So no matter what you think, movies, TV, music, books, gaming, you name it, it's all about streaming right now. And it, it's, you know, streaming is affecting everything. I know, Michael, you've got a, a ton we'll try of to, We'll us. try to barrel through this because we're running out of time. 
Um, so we've got a lot of stories. The Hollywood Reporter, again, they had a good couple weeks here. They had a big story on global video streaming and where growth is going to come from. Uh, they quote a Wall Street firm that says the obvious streamers in the U.S. have almost all the customers they can expect. Netflix, Disney Plus, etc. Except for Peacock and Paramount Plus. They do say maybe there's room for growth there. I would also add Warner Brothers Discovery once they launch HBO Discovery Max or whatever the hell it's called. So there is more growth. But mostly, if you want growth, it's going to come from overseas. And the way to do that is programming, original programming for countries around the world. And looking at an analysis of just April to September of this year, Netflix has greenlit 130 international shows and 62 films. Amazon has greenlit 92 international shows and 23 films, while Disney Plus, a little more of a boutique, they have greenlit 45 international shows and four films. This is amidst a lot of belt tightening. Obviously, we know Warner Brothers Discovery is slashing budgets and doing all sorts of stuff. Other people are focusing more on reality and competition fare, and even others are simply focusing on certain markets. They're saying we can't compete all over the world, but like Amazon and HBO Max, they're focusing on, of course, the U.S. and also the U.K., France, and Germany. I would assume that also includes Australia, since that's an English language territory. Uh, but in India, there's a lot of room for growth. Disney plus Hotstar is way ahead. They have 47 million subscribers. Amazon has 14 million subscribers. And Netflix has just 6 million subscribers. Nonetheless, Netflix is betting big on original programming because that's the way to grow. And in a country of a billion people, 47 million isn't that much of a lead. There's a lot of room to grow. So you're watching more international shows all the time. We do know that U.S. has mostly peaked, don't we think? Yes. I mean, you kind of mentioned, uh, oh, you know, 6 million users, 47 million users. Part of the issue that these companies are facing now with Wall Street, you know, before losing money on uh, building your streaming service, that was like all the rage, you know? Well, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about profit. Yeah. Forget profit. <laughs> Just market share, market share, market share. And then all of a sudden Netflix said, oh yeah, we lost some subscribers. And Wall Street went, what the? No, you need to be profitable right now, right now. <laughs> and, and everybody like, you know, basically, Every media company, every entertainment company was following Netflix right off a cliff. And <laughs> what, what Wall Street realized is, oh, you mean you could get 100 million people in India and you will make less than 10 million people in the UO. Yeah, that's a problem because the average revenue per user in some of these countries is much lower. And that's okay. African India will keep growing. I agree. I think, you know what? Yes. Okay. It's... $2, $3 in India instead of six fifty dollars or $7. 100 million people paying $2 adds up. Yeah, I, I look at that and go, just keep going. All right, moving on to Disney+. Plus. They made two big moves over the last few weeks. One is dumb and one is smart. First, ESPN has sold off the X Games. They've sold it off to a private equity firm that will reimagine the X Games. Ooh, presumably with live streaming of events on YouTube and Twitch and the like, as well as more FaceTime with athletes. ESPN still has broadcast rights in a multi-year deal. And okay, I will admit, I have watched the X Games in the past. I'm sure it needs a refresh, but to sell it off when you're the world leader in sports programming, this just seems idiotic to me. I think ultimately they, uh, I don't know what the, the, the contract for the broadcast rights says, but I think they were like, look, we are not an events company at all. Uh, and we have this event that we have to handle. And 
why are we doing, we'd rather broadcast the event than have to actually organize and throw the event, which is something we are not an expert in. And that might be why it kind of needs a refresh. Um, Okay, well, we agreed to disagree there, I think. They just wanted to get out of the putting it on business rather than just covering oh, it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not in disagreement. When I saw that, I went, well, that's stupid. Uh, but, but, I think, but then when I tried to look at it from like a devil's advocate perspective, I thought, well, maybe they're trying to say, like, stick close to the knitting, and this isn't our knitting. So and they do events like the ESPY Awards. They do, you know, they're, and when they go to a game day uh, in some college town, they're putting on an event. I think this is well within their purview, especially after 20-plus years or whatever of experience. I think it's a great brand. It's got to have room for refresh and grow. I don't like it. But I do like the fact that Disney Plus has picked up Doctor Who. They have snagged the rights to the Doctor Who franchise, at least new episodes, everywhere around the world outside the UK. All right. Now, if, if you live in the US and you want to watch the next episodes of Doctor Who, you're going to need Disney Plus. So you can add Doctor Who to the other franchises that have a home there. Star Wars, Marvel, Pixar, National Geographic, and of course, Disney. They're animated and live action classics. In the U.S., this maybe isn't a big deal. They've been playing on BBC America new episodes, so switching from BBC America to Disney Plus is not that big a deal. But Deadline points out, quote, over the years, the show has been a permanent fixture on broadcasters such as the ABC in Australia and TVNZ in New Zealand. It has also aired on many public and commercial channels and numerous BBC-branded services all around the world. So moving from all of them, them losing Doctor Who, a flagship brand, and having to go to Disney Plus is a big, big deal. So let's, you know, let's realize that it's not just movie theaters that are being affected by streamers. As Well, that's as, right. It's TV, yeah, it's music, yeah, it's exactly. everything. Right. I, I do. It's unclear to me. I tried to find out. They clearly will have the new episodes. Now, there's three movies starring David Tennant, who will be the returning as the Doctor in three movies for its 60th anniversary. And then in 2024, in Kutigatwa of the Netflix series Sex Education takes over as the next Doctor. So they will have those new episodes. It's not clear if they will have non-exclusive rights to the library. They sure as hell should have if they had any ability to do so. That would be worth the money to make sure you had to watch, you know, seasons one through 35 come to Netflix. I mean, to, to Disney Plus, that would be a good thing to do. Now, Moving this is exactly what, what streamers need to do, right? They need to have the content. And that's right. the problem that Warner Brothers has because, or Warner Brothers Discovery, because they are saying we need more content that's going to attract people, but we can't spend more money on more content. And if we do, we need to make it cheap. And it, but it needs to be content that people want to see, which we might not be able to do with less. It's just an, a mess. All right. So Netflix, we're moving on. A couple things happened. We got more details about the ad tier. They've admitted that the TV series The Crown is not a documentary. That's all we're going to say about that because it's so stupid. And they added subscribers. Let's start right there. After two straight quarters of subscriber loss, Netflix added 2.4 million new subscribers worldwide in the third quarter. After clutching pearls, you know, everybody else, oh, they can still grow a bit. Now, they didn't grow in the U.S. They added 100,000 people. That's, that's, that's nothing. But worldwide, they have 223 million subscribers. So it's a mature business. You got a problem with that? Uh, no, I, I don't. I think uh, the, the question that you have to start asking yourself is how, if it's not profitable now with a hundred million- Who said it's not? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying if it isn't is what I'm saying, then you're going to have to figure out 
how you're going to move forward and either reduce costs to uh, the cost of creating the product for those subscribers. Well, adding adding subscribers in Africa and India, even if they're only two dollars a person or a dollar a person, if you can add three hundred million people, that's an extra three hundred million dollars a month. Right. And if you're not spending more than that on, on programming, that's a gain on the bottom line. So there's a lot of room to grow. But you'll never, have, you'll never know that again. Well, actually, no, you will well, know that. You will know. And they've just added an advertising tier. Netflix with ads will cost $7 a month. That compares to $8 a month for Disney Plus with ads or Hulu with ads or $10 a month for HBO Max with ads. Does that sound like a good deal compared to those other companies? It's lower. You'll see about four to five minutes of ads an hour. Most of the content on Netflix will be available on the ad tier, though because of contracts, not all of it. It's launching in 12 countries at an equivalent price. Here's the question. Will this cannibalize the people subscribing at 14 or 15 or whatever dollars a month? Probably not. For $7 a month, you can only use one screen at a time. Meaning if you're watching on your TV, your child cannot watch on their laptop or their phone. Your wife cannot watch in the kitchen. So if you're looking for a bargain and you haven't added Netflix yet, you look at that seven bucks and you think, ah, that's worth it. I want to watch Dahmer. Might be worth it for $7 a month. If you've already got a a family watching Netflix that everybody's watching at the same time, you're going to stick with the plan you have. I think based on all that, they're not going to cannibalize. It's just going to provide growth. How big a growth? I don't know. Well, I do, do know that they, they are yeah. not going to uh, be projecting or predicting or forecasting future subscriber growth anymore because well, to what them- What will investors be able to yell and scream about? Well, you missed your, your goal well, or they you are, they your are goal. Forecasting, <laughs> uh, they are forecasting profit, and that is what, uh. they, which is their way of signaling like, please stop paying attention to subscribers and worry about whether we're making any money. Because Netflix is using ads, they're going to be using Nielsen to measure their, their audiences here on the ad tier service. And in the UK, they've joined Barb, a UK TV measurement service that captures viewership on four screens. It's called the four screen viewership over live plus seven. What does that mean? That means if you watch a BBC show on your TV, your tablet, your laptop, or your phone within seven days of a show airing, that that will be included in those measurements. And they're available two weeks after the weekends. You know, so like two weeks later, we have already right now the viewership available for the week ending October 23rd. It's only November 7th, to which I say, why can't we have that? <laughs> it's, why, if they can do it in the UK, why the heck can't we do it here? They have the same Apple and Android stuff and problems. So if they can do it in the UK, I wish we would do it here. And I'm going to skip over the fact that Netflix is still obsessed with the first 30 days of viewership when really what matters is the total viewership, just like total box office is more important than the opening weekend. At Show East this year, uh, Chris Aronson, who is the president of domestic distribution at Paramount Pictures, he was the MC at the final awards night, and he, he uh-huh. got on stage and he said, oh, you know, hey, welcome everyone. You know, tonight, tonight the, the ceremony is being uh, streamed day and date, of course. Oh, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> uh, we, we, we won't know how many uh, people are, are, uh, are watching or how many people came because that is just the way we do things now. Right, Spencer? And he looked over at Spencer <laughs> Klein uh, from, from uh, Netflix because, of course, if you are Paramount, you want to know when you go to say, look, you've got to hold my movie. You, you, can't, you can't, or you've got to book my movie. When they say, I can't, I've got, I've got to keep this Netflix movie on. Well, how much did that, that movie make? Well, we can't say how much it made. Well, how do you know you have to keep it? I, I, need, I need some information to go on here. 
Well, they are, they usually have contracts for the first two or three weeks or something or a month, so that wouldn't change whether it's Netflix or another competing studio. Uh, but in terms of wanting to know what a movie makes at the box office, of course you do, and everybody wants to know what viewership is like, and it should be public and transparent. But one thing Netflix is transparent about is how much money they spend. They spent about $17 billion on content, both original and acquired, in 2022. And given its growth and success... You're like, how much money are they making? How much are they growing around the world? Had Reed Hastings said, you know, you know what? That might just be about right. Because in the past, people said, well, they're going to have to cut back on their content spend so they can become profitable. And he said, you know what? Maybe not. Maybe that's just about right. Maybe he's playing a game of chicken to force everybody else to run away scared. But uh, what they're doing right now is working. And they're also the network of last resort. Used to be if a show was canceled, you say, oh, I hope PBS picks it up. Or I hope HBO picks it up. Or I hope a cable channel picks it up like TBS. Now you might say, I hope Netflix picks it up. When a show is canceled, Netflix might be your saver. Peacock canceled the sitcom Girls 5 Eva. I don't know why. Netflix picked it up for the show's third season. They also bought the global rights to the first two seasons. It's a universal show. So there you go. And Tina Fey is a producer, and she already had success when the show Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt was going to go to NBC, but they panicked, and instead, the first season began on Netflix, and that ran for four seasons. Cobra Kai moved from YouTube to Netflix. So this is another streaming show switching from one stream streamer to another. So it's not just the networks losing ground, it's streamers competing with others and say, oh, you dropped that show? Watch us turn it into a hit. We'll have to see what happens. All right, very quickly, Warner Brothers Discovery, they've hit 94.9 million subscribers worldwide, and they've moved up the combined release date for HBO Max Discovery. That's going to happen in spring 2023. Will people raise their prices? Well, Apple is. Apple Music went from $10 to $11. Apple TV Plus went from $5 to $7. Bundles are also rising. I wish their big bundle that included Apple News was a little cheaper. Will Spotify and Amazon follow suit? Well, Spotify said, we'd sure like to raise our prices. <laughs> Paramount Plus is growing. They're at $46 million worldwide. They're doing more bundling with Showtime and their service Pluto, which is a free service with ads that hit 72 million monthly active users. And they think that combo of Paramount Plus and Pluto works really, really well. Spotify hit 195 million paid subscribers. It has 4.7 million podcasts. You're welcome, Spotify. Yes, I would say 4.5 million of them are ours. That's right. Facebook hit put hit 2.93 billion users, but profits in the quarter dropped 50% and shares fell 24% on all the mega spending that Zucker, uh, Zuckerberg, that, that what's his name is doing on the metaverse. So we'll yeah, have no, to see where it's, that it's, ends it's Mark, up. It's Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg. And Twitter was taken over by Elon Musk, which brings us right to our obituary section. Yes, because, <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't even know where to begin with this guy. I mean, we ignore them, ignore it. It's just like, I've never, this is going to be a business school case for years to come because it's like a way, here's how not to lay people off. Here's how not to take over a business and in one week completely crash it into the ground. He literally fired, he kept people on based on how much coding they did because he decided that was all that mattered. Coders are what matter for Twitter. Nobody else matters. So if you weren't doing a lot of coding, that was where they, they cut you off at the bottom. And then they went a few days later and said, oh, wow, we actually need some of these people for the business to run. And they've started trying to hire them back. 
That yes. is really a dumpster fire. Uh, multiple things that they've decided or thought about have proven silly. We'll have to see where it ends up. He's done a great job with Tesla. However, whatever he is as a person, Tesla is great thanks to government subsidies of four to $600 million that has all been paid back, but a great investment made during the Obama administration. That really paid off. SpaceX is great, also helped by massive government contracts, but a genuine success story. So some very cool stuff. But boy, this is not good. Well, when you look at this business, and I know this isn't what we're supposed to be talking about now, the business will have to pay a billion dollars a year just to service the debt. The business itself has never made It's a never been dollars. profitable. Well, yeah. that's why he wants to make some money somewhere, somehow. Yeah. <laughs> well, that brings us to our obituary section. Please check it out. We have... A little write-up on all these people, some more substantial than others, and we're just going to pull out one factoid from each of them. We had an obit for Sashine Littlefeather, and after that came out a number of columns and stories about her indigenous backstory and whether that was valid or not. A great, interesting story in the San Francisco Chronicle, followed by one in the Variety, and another one, I believe, in the Wall Street Journal or somewhere else. Um, we have links to all three of them. It's an interesting debate. It's a, an ongoing debate in the indigenous American community. It's really interesting. One fact that I didn't know about when reading her Wikipedia page after this all came out that it's not so clear what her uh, history is ethnically. Uh, she posed for a Playboy spread back in the early 70s when she became famous, and it was called 10 Little Indians. This was before her Oscar fame when she came. I was like, oh. And in a rare case of discretion, Playboy chose not to run the piece. So, so thank heaven for small blessings. But they never ran their spread of ten Afri of of uh, uh, Indigenous American women called Ten Little Indians. Oh my God! But anyway, Jerry Lee Lewis died, a major figure in rock and roll history, an ugly private life. However, right before he died, coincidentally, I did for the first time listen to his album Another Time, Another Place. It was a country breakthrough in 1968. It revived his career, at least on the country charts, and gave him a decade of major success. And it's a great, great album. He was the last surviving member of what's known as the Sun Records Million Dollar Quartet. That's when Elvis, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, and Jerry Lee Lewis got together in the studio and banged some songs out. And a fifth member of the quartet is Roy Orbison. Uh, but that's a great group of people, and he's the last one to go. Uh, I'm sure you Bass. watched Jules yeah. Bass, man. I was like, when I told this to people, they were like, who? I'm like, Rankin Bass? They were like, who? I was like, Santa Claus is coming to town. They were like, no! Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, the stop-motion animation that they made famous or they perfected or whatever you want to say. The Rankin Bass people really had a big impact. Jules Bass died at 87. Uh, uh, Rankin was the artist and Jules Bass was the writer and lyricist. And in my mind, the, the TV series... Uh, Santa Claus is coming to town is the Citizen Kane of holiday specials. It's widely available to rent. They did animated versions of the return of the King and the Hobbit for television. Peter Jackson even did visual homages where he did a shot for shot remake of a shot or two that was taken from their animated special for the return of the King when he was doing the Lord of the Rings. So that's pretty cool. The now, irony is of that, the that of course, not, you know, spoiler alert, you, you mentioned Citizen Kane of, of holiday movies, Rosebud, Given yeah. what Rosebud is, I don't want to. I don't want to. It's give... a sled. Oh gosh, we, you can do. You can. You can do that. It's. It's been seventy years. Okay. 80 years. Well, yeah. So you know, snow. Santa Claus is coming to town. Snow sled. Okay. Well, never mind. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's a, a link there. You're right. Yeah. Did you ever watch the documentary film American Movie? No, I have not. 
Our in-house film critic, Aaron Rich, says it's one of his favorite films of all time. Not documentary films, films full stop. He loves the movie. It's certainly a cult classic. It debuted at Sundance, I believe. Yes, it, it won the Grand Jury Prize for documentaries. It's now a cult classic at the very least. And musician Mike Shank, who appears in the movie, is a big reason why. He died at 56, and he's best remembered for his sweet, supportive turn in that film while a friend of his is trying to make an indie horror flick called Coven. So, you know, it's, it's a movie well worth watching. Uh, and Carly Simon, she just got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and within one week, her sister, uh, opera singer, Lu- uh, uh, Joanna Simon. Simon, died of thyroid oh. cancer, and Lucy Simon, her other sister, died of breast cancer. So a really hard week for Carly Simon. Joanna Simon was a major opera singer. Lucy Simon won Grammys for children's albums that she did. She did some solo albums, and her big success story was the Broadway musical The Secret Garden. Quite a hit show. It's going back onto tour uh, in, in L.A. in February. So she had a great career as well. <coughs> Moving on, Dennis Verkler, the Oscar-nominated film editor. He died at the age of 80. You know you've had a wild ride when an editor can work on movies like The Fugitive and The Hunt for Red October and a flop like Xanadu, to which he probably would say, hey, you should have seen the movie before I edited it. <laughs> Among his other credits are the equally notorious and equally gay superhero flick Batman and Robin, as well as everything from the Bad News Bears Go to Japan to Rob Zombie's reboot of Halloween. The Fugitive, by the way, was ranked by fellow film editors as one of the best edited movies of all time, ranking 39 out of 75 movies. It's just below West Side Story and just above A Clockwork Orange. The number one film on that list is Raging Bull. We've got a link to it in our show notes. Did you ever listen to the group Migos, Sperling? I did not, but that's not saying much because I'm me. That's right. Well, you're pretty hip. You try to listen to new music, but the Atlanta-based hip-hop trio Migos lost one of its one of its three members. Rapper Takeoff died, unfortunately, in a shooting at a party. Uh, tragic and sad news, as is the news about Aaron Carter. He's the brother of Nick Carter from Backstreet Boys. Aaron died at 34. He was Nick's little brother. He enjoyed a huge burst of pop fame starting when he was nine. Child stardom is a really dangerous, difficult thing. Uh, but Emmy winner David Davis knew when to walk away. He is an Emmy-winning producer, and he was a major player in the 70s as both a writer and producer. He started with junk in the 60s, like My Mother the Car and Gilligan's Island. He ended up at MTM Productions. That's the place you wanted to work at. He worked on the Mary Tyler Moore show. He directed part of the episode of Rhoda, where she got married. That's pretty great. And then he co-created two of the best sitcoms of all time, The Bob Newhart Show and Taxi. Why was Bob Newhart a psychologist? Because Dave Davis was in therapy and said, hey, let's make him a psychologist. <laughs> and here's the weird thing. First, he, he recommended Julie Kavner for the role of Rhoda's sister on the show Rhoda in 1974. Then he developed a relationship and ended up marrying Julie Kavner in 1976. She, of course, is the voice of Marge Simpson on The Simpsons. Here's the really cool thing. And if you know what's going on here, to let us know. In 1979... After co-creating The Bob Newhart Show and Taxi, he retired. He basically did nothing else. He was a minor consultant for uh, uh, Brooks when he went on to make like Terms of Endearment and stuff like that. Uh, he basically did nothing after that. Did he just say, you know what? I'm done. I got all the money I need and I'm happy. I don't know. what Did he go fishing? I don't know. I couldn't find out anywhere, but more power to him. I hope he stopped because he was just happy and done. 
I know Leslie Jordan wasn't done. He's an Emmy winner from Will and Grace, and he died in a car crash, sadly. Uh, he was still on the TV. He was in the sitcom Call Me Cat, which is still airing, where he played a gay baker. He was just one of those flamboyant character actors. He flourished on television and movies. And he's in a long line of campy queer character actors, people like Paul Lynn and Sean Hayes, at least when he was on Will and Grace. And he did win an Emmy for Will and Grace. I spoke to him, and he loved every minute of his fame. Angela Lansbury died. I can never cover enough of everything that she did. But this, the happy news is one of her last roles was as the bird lady in Mary Poppins Returns. Not a great movie, but a nice, sweet cameo. But Murder, She Wrote is one of the great flubs of all time. This show was in the top 15 for 11 years on CBS. It aired on Sunday, following 60 Minutes. It was a lock. Then after 11 seasons, CBS decided to move it to Thursday opposite NBC's juggernaut Friends. What a ridiculous thing. Is that their idea of counter-programming? Old people got to figure out where it's moved to and young people are never going to watch it. It crashed out of the top 50 and that season was its last and the finale was titled Death by Demographics. (laughs) So, oh boy, was that a bad mistake. DJ Art LeBeau died. He had a very significant career in radio. He was on the radio for about 75 years, beginning when he was a teenager in 1943. One of the first DJs to develop a personality on air, making themselves a draw, not just saying, here's the next song. He popularized and maybe invented the on-air dedication, where callers could call in and dedicate a song to their family or friends or loved ones. And on air in L.A., he welcomed calls from black, Asian, and Latin audience members, something that was not done in the 40s and 50s. He also sponsored dances in L.A. at the El Monte from the mid-50s to the mid-60s. And those audiences were also notably diverse, both on stage and off. And finally, this is why I really got excited. In his biggest innovation, he formed a record label and saw a market for what he called, or a phrase he helped popularize, oldies but goodies. Oldies But Goodies Volume 1 came out in 1959. The songs on it were goodies, but they were barely oldies yet. They were from the 50s. But he was on to something right away. That first album stayed on the charts for more than three years. And many more volumes followed on vinyl and 8-track and cassette and then CD. I bought many of them. They were always well-engineered. They were great. It was just a really smart, clever thing to do. And uh, he, he made money off that for decades. So more power to him. And cover your kids' ears. Make sure your kids aren't listening. Hagrid is dead. Wait, That's right, what? actor Robbie, Col- Robbie Coltrane oh. died at the age of 72. He was in Cracker. A lot of great stories. A lot of great roles. He was in Henry V with Kenneth Branagh. He was in a, two Bond films of Pierce Brosnan's era, playing a uh, goodish bad guy or a baddish good guy, a former KGB agent and sort of friend to James Bond. Uh, he was on this sketch series early on called Alfresco. His co-stars, Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry, and Emma Thompson. Ah, that's not a bad group to be in. And then, of course, he was Hagrid. Uh, Emmy-winning producer Ben Feigen died at 47. He was a big force behind the TV show Shit's Creek. Uh, and also, at AOL, he was involved in what might be the first ever live-streamed event. So he's part of, you know, streaming history. He died of prostate cancer. And Ian Whitaker, the Oscar-winning Pancreatic director, cancer. He died of pancreatic cancer. Oh, I wrote it wrong? Yeah, okay. he died of pancreatic cancer. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I apologize for that. And Ian Whitaker, the Oscar-winning set director, died at I-94. I believe he died of prostate cancer, but maybe I'm wrong. And people who are fans of the auteur theory, cover your ears. 
Because what does a set director do? Well, maybe you don't quite know, but when you look at the credits of Ian Whitaker for a lot of different directors, you know that their craft matters and they're not just doing what they're told because he did good work everywhere. He won an Oscar for the Merchant Ivory film Howard's End. His first Oscar nomination was for Ridley Scott's Alien. How's that, a one, how's that for a one-two punch? He began as an actor, but he loved the craft side. He did nine features with Ken Russell. He did the Who's film Tommy. So he worked with Roger Daltrey a number of times. He did everything from the Rocky Horror Picture Show to Prince's Under the Cherry Moon to Highlander to Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility to Dragon Slayer. Just a great, diverse list of movies where his work was always top notch. So you're saying he's a hack. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. He come to the opening of an envelope. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that is it for us on this week's episode, or should I say this month's episode? Yeah, uh, really. We'll be back in 14 weeks. Right, exactly. Uh, but you know what? If you want to know when we're back, you should probably subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, where we are one of 4.2 trillion podcasts that they have. Uh, you know what? Uh, that information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. We're also on uh, voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Or on Twitter, at least for the time being, at showbizsandbox is our handle. <laughs> Uh, again, facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox is where you can like our page. All of that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's I'm exhausted.com. And that's probably because you had to cover. I don't know, 40 weeks, weeks worth of 40 it. weeks. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Play nice.